Photon says, no, I'm traveling light. <laughs> ah, I'm traveling light. Oh, that's cute. That's very cute. And just see so. him like passing through security. <laughs> I bet you he has glasses. I imagine him as a, as a fine Oh, he's man definitely a photon. Yeah. That photon. A photon. A photon. <laughs> are we assuming, are we assuming the, the photon's gender? Maybe some though, sunglasses. Oh. Because... <gasps> You mean like the like like I'm going on vacation sunglasses? The ones oh yeah, like the, the kind that like here? you tighten with the little clasp on the back that wraps all the way around. So you know, in case you're getting into exactly too much heavy about. activity, they definitely don't fall off your head. Yeah, well, you, you need my the dad fun used strap. to rock the fun those strap makes it so that you could yeah have all the fun. <laughs> your dad still kind of rocks those. I feel like I've seen like, oh my god strapped sunglasses around his neck before. Oh, yeah, if he's out, like, working in one of the fields. If he's out in the fields. <laughs> in, the, in, in, a, in a Hawaiian t-shirt. <laughs> every time I see the man, he's in a Hawaiian It's the t-shirt. sunglasses that go, like, yeah. all the way around. And, like, you know, it's shaded on the sides almost to the oh, middle of your awesome. head. You don't let any, any sun get in there. <laughs> and not today. Not today. Day not today, TV. photon. <laughs> not today, photons. Oh, are you wearing the same glasses as me? Welcome to Contagious Curiosity with Cat and Laney. I am Laney, and I'm Cat. Oh, and we have an awesome episode uh, here for you right now. It's happening in your ears. We are covering two very fun short stories. Well, fun. I I like yours. It is a good time, but I don't know if I'd classify it as fun. Yeah, I mean, I would put it in the same category of, um, like, The Day the Earth Stood Still Met uh, Rick and Morty. I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. It's a good time. Would, it's all good that's, times. That's, that's kind of a crossing of what my story is. I'm so excited, though. This was such a good idea for, for an episode, too. Yes, and Kat and I are going old school, so you will, in fact, hear the flipping of pages because we both have printed out versions of our stories. So just, it'll make you feel like you're in the room, like you're reading it yourself. In a strange voice that is definitely not your own. Doing some nice you like that fluttering of paper? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Need a crackling fire behind it as well. When you have the real thing, like it's it. almost like, <laughs> why are you doing it with your mouth? <laughs> Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> so what are you drinking tonight? So I uh, I have this fantastic root beer soda. Uh, rat bastard root beer. Tastes like a son of a bitch. Mm. So um, ah. yeah, simple, simple bottle. Um, super, super sugary. You know, it's got one of those smacks when you when you take a sip off mm. of it you almost got to wash it down with some water or some shit <laughs> watering down your soda perfect totally normal thing to do no i get it though there's some like what is it the the cane yeah. cane sodas sure like oh, those are sometimes hard to get through but they're delicious through like a third of them <laughs> 
Yours tastes like a son of a bitch. And I am drinking Cast Iron Bitch, which is a delicious little IPA from Bigelow Brewing Company in Scouting, Maine. As the China It's great. Say. I love it. I wish I had more of it, but I don't. <laughs> Look at us doing all this free plug. <laughs> oh, there's some there's China, some tunes China, that never China, leave your brain. The China Dinah song, too. definitely. The Scout the Scout State Fair. Fair. Oh my god, that's been a, that's been around for <laughs> for a hoot and a holler, as someone would say. Yeah. They got the Scout Hegan State Fair. You know you got that fur. Forever. <laughs> Just, Such oh. fun and excitement, you gotta be there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I wish I was better at the banjo just so I could play that one song. That's the only song I'd learn. Just the one song. Just come out on stage, sold out show, and just sit down and only play this Gowheen statement. (laughs) It's obviously going to be a sold out show. (laughs) Come on. Who wouldn't want to come see somebody they have no idea who they are? Play nothing but a banjo. I'll be honest with you, though. I'm pretty sure there was one time in my life where um, I was watching you play the banjo, but you were just kind of fucking around with it. I think it was you. And I just thought it sounded so good because all you had to do is just have the right kind of plucking rhythm, even if you didn't know exactly what you were doing. (laughs) Exact same time. You just got to get all your fingers going at the exact in. same time in a way that kind of sounds like music. With old Boom. crow medicine you're show. playing the banjo, wagon man. wheeling it up. You're playing the banjo. <laughs> 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 I should be so lucky. Yeah, you're going to go first. So this little tale is called The Chasers by David A. Cook. Looking out over the mall's concourse, I watched as surging mobs crowded into tunnel trams. People scurrying like rats among the compact rows of apartments and shops stuffed into each level of the city. Twenty levels above, sunlight streamed in through the above grounds. The dust kicked up by the thousands of people crowded together underground, pushing and shoving their way through life, obscured the sunlight. Forty levels below, at the bottom of the city, people live in perpetual twilight. It's at these lower levels that crime and poverty thrived and where I make a living trying to keep it in check. I often wonder if they're aware of the world above them, a world where your stature is determined by the level on which you live and work. I fail to see the beauty in this underground hell. I tapped the shade button on the scene and the window faded to black. Had to burp. Excuse me. (laughs) A knock sounded at the door. I turned to find a short, fat man with a stream of sweat on his red face. The man wiped his brow with a red cloth clenched in his sausage fingers and croaked. Are you merchant? That's what the sign on the door states. Who are you? My name's Ferret. I'm Security Commissioner Kreider's assistant. He wishes to talk with you in his office. It's a matter of city security. My mouth opened in response, but words didn't form. The commissioner's assistant turned and disappeared into the malang that flowed along the concourse. Kreider? City security? Oh, my mind was racing. I'd been out of that for years. What would the head of SecureNet want with a retired chaser? I grabbed my tram card and followed the little man into the crowd. The endless clamor of voices and shuffling feet filled the air, broken only by the screech of tunnel tram brakes. God, I hate crowds. 
The other elevator climbed to level 55 and shuddered to a stop. There are five more floors between here and the surface, but these are taken up by environmental processing facilities. I never liked being up this high. I felt the air may be thinner, and that probably affected the city leader's thinking. The elevator doors opened silently. I stepped into the corridor and glanced at the digital display on the wall opposite me. It glowed red letters, an arrow validated my memory where my former boss resided. City security agents dressed in the crisp-cut blue uniforms of law enforcement cast quick glances in my direction as they zip past. CSAs aren't used to seeing civilians up this high unless they're in shackles. I made my way down the hall, noticing that the paint scheme hadn't changed, but maybe the layer of grime was a bit thicker or darker. Seems Kreider wasn't the stickler for cleanliness that the previous commissioner was. I hesitated outside the commissioner's office. I was a little nervous. I hadn't seen Kreider in eight years. He had been my district agent then. We never got along. My partner, Terry Sindal, and I were, were chasers for District 5. We broke up an illegal water consortium, but two dealers were killed in the firefight. Kreider brought us up on charges that we used excessive force. <laughs> of course, it was true, but Kreider was paying way too much attention to politics and not enough to the case. He was one of six district agents in line for the security commissioner's position. The courts had always been hard on chasers brought up on charges, but the public wanted something done about the water dealers. Members of the court, keenly sensitive to which way the winds of the public sentiment were blowing, acquitted us. Since then, I retired, Terry d died in a bizarre accident, and Kreider moved up to security commissioner. I don't think he ever forgot. I know I didn't. I wiped my moist palms on my trousers and entered the commissioner's office. I flashed my protector at disk at the android centenary. It hesitated. Scanned my disk, then a voice that scraped my skull. It spoke... You may enter, Mr. Merchant. Commissioner Kreider is expecting you. I walked through the security portal and pushed through a swinging steel door to Kreider's office. Kreider sat behind a huge, ornately carved desk. A computer screen cast a menacing green tint to his sharp-cut features. He leaned back, hand behind a head of close-cropped grizzly hair. Kreider looked at me with small dark eyes set deep in their sockets and motioned for me to take a seat. Mr. Merchant, I've called you here because I have a proposition for you. Call me Dan, please. As you know, Merchant, SecureNet is responsible for protecting the citizen. But something has happened that could disrupt that service. I happen to think you can solve our problem. Do you wish to contract the Protectorate? No, but I am reactivating the Chasers. The Chasers. We were disbanded seven years ago when the city had signed a contract with SecureNet for city law enforcement. The city no longer needed chasers to track down and capture fugitives. SecureNet was to provide the city with all aspects of law enforcement. The city had only to provide a security commissioner. In the years that followed, SecureNet proved that to be rather ineffective, and I started my own security firm, the Protectorate. My people were hired by the city elite for personal protection. You can't do that! But I knew only too well that he could. My retirement clause stated that I could be recalled up to 10 years after retirement. Why not use CSAs? I don't have time to train them in combat techniques. Combat techniques? What the hell is going on? It appears that descendants of the Water Revolt rebels, they may have taken control of one of the city's air intake structures. They have one, then it's conceivable that they could take all four. If we lose two more, the city will go down hard. The scenario dictates the potential use of force. Secu city security 
can't take a chance on that this is only a natural phenomenon. But the rebels were banished to the above grounds over a hundred years ago. They can't have survived up there. The operations people have reevaluated earlier environmental data and have concluded that survival, though slim, it is possible. Based on that, we feel it is prudent to handle the situation as a threat from possible survivors. Of course, you and your chaser crew will be briefed prior to ascent to the above grounds. When it looked as though I was going to argue further, Kreider cut me off with, Need I remind you of Force Directive 071. Well, I guess I don't have a choice. But I pick the members of my crew, and I trust we'll be supplied with recycler suits, weapons, and anything else we'll need. Of course, Mr. Merchant. You'll have everything you need to complete the mission. After all, we would like very much for you to succeed. Where do we go up? The airlock. Rust and oil stains drooled down the white face of the towering airlock door. A massive brass locking ring around the circumference of the door still gleamed through the verdigris that accumulated on it. In the early days, when construction of the city was near co completion, there were two airlocks in operation. Both airlocks were located in the top level, which housed the environmental processing equipment for the city and opened up into the east side of the old city. The airlocks prevented contamination of the city from the radiation and chemical pollution of the above grounds. One airlock was used to transport large equipment and structures to the city. The second was used for people to access the underground city. This was the personnel access airlock, and its doors hadn't been opened since the time of the water revolts in 2990. It'd be a wonder if the door operated after a hundred years in after a hundred and twenty years of standing idle. That must have been a frightening scene. Hundreds of rebels rounded up by chasers, rushed through the court system and herded into the airlock. When the outer door opened to the above grounds, they were shoved out into a nightmare world ravaged by acid rain, radiation, and hellish heat. I had a good crew here in this reactivated chaser squad. The twins, Billy and Nico, were skeleton-thin, but sinewy. They had bright eyes that made you think they were a little crazy. God, I hope they weren't. They had enough explosives to blow up half the city. Next to the twins sat Doc, kneading his fingers and occasionally pounding his fist into an open palm. Of the five chasers, he resisted the most. Doc was working for the city's medical center and didn't want to give up his lucrative practice. Tanya sat straight back next to me. Those ruddy cheeks and round face made me think of a cherub's face. A clever disguise for the android killing machine underneath. Cradled in the smooth artificial flesh of her arms, an ST-70 capable of spitting 500 rocket-propelled slugs a minute. This will be a new experience for us. At the briefing, we were told that descendants of rebel and rebels and criminals who were banished to the above grounds during the water revolts may be living in the old city ruins. I doubted anyone could survive up there in acid rain and with temperatures that could reach 60 Celsius. The ultraviolet radiation that bathed the planet's surface after the ozone layer was depleted would surely roast anyone le left standing. If there were people living up there, they probably wouldn't be too friendly. Bringing Tanya along was the most reassuring thing we did. The sudden rush of air through the chamber's inlet valve on the side of the airlock brought me out of my daydream. Everyone stood back as the locking ring groaned and creaked. A light above the door flashed red, and we stepped aside as the airlock door inched its way open. The air that filtered through my helmet tasted of stale and dryness scratched my lungs. The smell, it was strange. I thought of the rebels 
and suddenly a chill ran through me. I stepped up into the airlock chamber and the rest of my team filled in. Everyone was dead silent and wore a look of excited expectancy. I knew from experience that it was a mask hiding the nervousness that nodded in our stomachs. After everyone climbed in, Nico activated the closure mechanism. The giant door began to pinch off the light from the sodium lamps in the processing facility. After equalization, we would see unfiltered sunlight for the first time in our lives. A green light above the inner door flared to life and equalization with the outside world began. You think we'll find anyone up there? Billy asked, no one in particular. Nobody can survive unprotected in the above grounds, I said. Even with the best available equipment, we can only stay up there for three days. Then why do we need Tanya? asked Nico. Tanya shot him a cold stare. No offense, Tanya. It's always best to prepare for the unexpected, I said. A light above the outer airlock door flashed red, signaling that the door was ready to open. All right now, people, this is it. My voice reverberated off the curved wall of the airlock. When the outer door opens, the old sports stadium will be 200 meters straight ahead. Tanya and Billy are up set are to set up up there. Verify your UV shields are up and activated infrared. Operations reported that a sandstorm was dying out, but straight optics may still be obscured. And I don't want anyone to fire a weapon unless you're fired on first. A bright green, a bright crescent of light began to form around the airlock door. Sand was starting to blow in through the newly formed gap. As soon as the door opened about a meter, Tanya and Billy shot out of the door and were lost in the glare. I could barely make out the ruins of the city through the mist and sand. Broken and disintegrated, it stood as a somber testament to mankind's stupidity. I held up my hand and waited for Billy to radio all clear. Chief, Billy here. Everything is clear. Nothing on infrared. We're on our way, Billy. We sprang into action. Sand was whipping around and everything looked out of focus. I could feel the sun's fury trying to get through my recycler suit. Though it would sustain me for three days without replenishment, I still felt a slight discomfort knowing that without it I would dehydrate in a matter of hours. Chief, take, take cover! I've got six heaters bearing 290! Closing fast! Take cover over there! I yelled, pointing to a large object to my left. Everyone obeyed. I crashed into the sand and rolled into a rusted and decaying mass transit vehicle. I crouched down next to the door and checked for a ready light on my sonic rifle. Nico and Doc came running up and fell into the sand next to me. Billy, what direction are they? I was interrupted by the unmistakable and steady bark of Tanya's ST-70. Billy, what the hell is going on? Tanya's monotone voice came over my helmet speaker. Billy has been hit. Situation critical. Her weapons fire never wavered as she spoke. Infrareds have projected have projectile weapons. Must consider targets to be sentient. Three of the infrareds have ceased to function. The remaining three are bearing two, three, zero, three hundred meters. Tanya, maintain cover fire. We're coming in. As I turned to give the signal to advance, Nico streaked past me, his automatic rifle spitting up fire in the general direction of the heaters. Things were going to shit fast, I thought. Let's go, Doc! We ran after Nico, weapons pouring forth a stream of death. When we arrived at the crumbled entrance to the stadium, Tanya's weapon was silent and a waft of smoke issued from the barrel. Nico was at Billy's side, cradling his limp head. The sandstorm had died down to the point where the sun's glare was reflecting off the pool of blood that accumulated at our feet. Doc knelt next to Billy, checked for a pulse, stood up, and shook his head, indicating the obvious. Nico was first to break the silent. 
Son of a bitch, Billy knew. He friggin' knew these bastards would be waiting for us. Tanya, status report, I demanded. Upon arrival at the stadium entrance, Billy acquired six targets on infrared. We did not have visual contact. It must have been a heat seeker that struck him in the chest. I opened fired. All six targets were terminated. We better not waste time, I said. Don't think, th I don't think those will be the only ones. There will be more. We must find a safer location before nightfall. We'll give Billy a decent burial, then head south. The red-orange globe of the sun was sinking toward the broken-tooth ruins that stretched to the horizon. The wind had dropped off, as if in a solemn approbation for the dead. I guessed wind speed to be about 15 to 20 notch knots. That seemed somewhat low. Historica, historical data averaged wind speed to be at least 30 or 40 knots, except during storms. Even the heat felt lower than reports had stated. I suppose reports could be wrong. A hurricane had knocked out the last instrumentation, instrumentation tower over 50 years ago. No one had any desire to breathe the elements or restore the tower. There seemed to be nothing at stake. People were content, were content with the life in the city. Scientists agreed that it would take thousands of years for the Earth to fix itself, so why bother? Nico set the last broken slab of concrete on Billy's makeshift grave and placed Billy's helmet on the automatic rifle impaled in the ground at the head of the grave. Grab your shit, we're moving out, I said. The map shows a subway station about a kilometer south of here. If we start now, we should get there before dark. We'll establish camp for the night once we get there. In the morning, we'll follow the subway south until we find the airlock in the air intake. According to this map, there sh there's a subway track that should bump us out about 500 meters from the air intake structure. We reached the entrance to the subway as the sun was setting. Behind the city's ruins. The sun painted the clouds in violet and red hues and the sky seemed clearer than we had ever been taught as children. The entry to the subway tunnel was a rectangular opening in the pavement. Its black maw beckoned us to, into the abyss. The stairs were littered with garbage and rubble. Nico tossed a flare grenade down the stairs, and it erupted into a white blaze, then died down to a steady orange light. Far below, shadows danced in the flickering glow. My mind filled in the scenes with people that gathered here in, fr in frantic droves a thousand years ago and cramped into the trains that would have sent them all to all corners of the ancient city. Tanya led the way down the stairs and through the debris. Where the stairs ended, a cavernous corridor opened. Through the thousand years of neglect and ravages of nature, the blue and white tile walls could still be seen. Thick patches of mold grew out of the cracks and vines crawled along the railings and fences. We walked another twenty meters and were met by turnstiles that were rusted still. Nico threw another grenade down the corridor leading to the subway loading platform. At the end of the corridor, more shadows danced among the platform supporting columns. Something in the picture didn't look right. Those shadows are human, Nico blurted out. Heaters everywhere! I can't tell! Where? All directions! Everyone took cover behind turnstiles and ticket booths. Glass crunched beneath me. When I looked down the corridor again, they were gone. Nico shrugged in disbelief. I motioned to advance. Tanya, take point! Nico, you go with Tanya. When you get to the end of the corridor, Tanya will toss out a sonic grenade. Who or whatever is out there won't be able to argue after their brains explode. Then we'll set up a defensive perimeter around the platform area and make camp for the night. Tanya slowly approached the end of the platform area. Her ST-70 glinted in the dying glow of the flare grenade. She reached into her tunic, brought out a sonic grenade, and threw it towards the platform area. 
Seconds later, there was a bright flash and a muffled blast. Nico jumped up and took off running toward the glow of the grenade on the platform. Nico was an eerie shadow in the orange halo that formed on the tunnel wall from his weapon fire. "'Nico, get your ass back here!' I screamed, but he was drowned out by his rifle. He's a good fighter, but sometimes he reacts too damn fast. When he reached the platform area, his rifle went silent. Nico surveyed the area in the dying light of the grenade. He turned, his, his hand went up to signal all clear, and then his chest blew out in a red spray. As he fell forward, his hand waved us back. Tanya pointed out into the dark and then started crawling toward the platform area. She stopped five meters short at the end of the tunnel. A signal shot ran out, and then Tanya motioned us to advance. There must have been a sniper up in the, guide, the guiders who survived the sonic blast. I saw a faint flash just before Nico took it in the back, Tanya said without emotion. He was shot in the upper back with a large caliber weapon. I think it was a shotgun, Doc explained. I examined some of the dead, he went on. They seem to be in pretty good shape. The skin on their hands and face is darker than other areas. This would probably indicate that they spend consider amount, a considerable amount of time in the sun, yet they don't wear any protective equipment. And although they were wearing tinted lenses, I wear, and a few were wearing hats, but I found no evidence of radiation damage, skin lesions, tumors, burns, anything. I think that was the first time he spoke since we arrived in the above grounds. We better start setting up defensive positions to get us through the night. Tanya finished securing the area, and I completed setting up the defensive equipment. I walked to the edge of the platform area, careful not to trip the, trip the sensor wires that lined the area. I scanned the walls that reached 10 meters and then arced over to another platform area. Infrared detectors dotted the walls and columns of the subway station. Two sets of subway tracks covered with, with a thousand, year of thousand of year <laughs> years of debris from a decay, the decay of subway, separated the two platforms. Tanya had placed small anti-personnel devices where the tracks disappeared into the black subway tunnels. The morning greeted us with an explosion from the east subway tunnel. Tanya, sticking, sitting in the dark corner of the platform, sprung to her feet with weapon aimed toward the tunnel. Doc and I scrambled for our rifles. What the- Doc interrupted himself when the smoke started to drift out of the tunnel. We better head into the west tunnel. Whoever set off that mine will not be happy, Tanya said. I packed everything up during the night. We don't have to take we don't have time to take down all the defensive equipment. Let's get down on the tracks and head west. The IR sensor in your helmets will pick up the heat signature from the mines I laid. As we made our way through the debris on the tracks, we could hear the echoed voices behind us. There was another explosion followed by screams, and then the voices started up again. They were getting louder. After about 500 meters, the tracks started to curve gently northward. Shots rang out and Doc screamed, "I'm hit!" Hold up! I think we're going to have to make a stand, I said. No way, Chief. You and Tanya go on ahead. I'll stay here and hold them off. Doc, I, I can't let you do that. You'll be killed. I'm dead anyway. I've been hit in the back and I have no feeling in my legs. Just give me enough explosives to take out the section of this tunnel and I'll take care of the rest. Damn it, Doc! Just do it. Otherwise, nobody will make it. Then he grabbed my arm and pulled me close. Take off my helmet he said. I obliged him. He then he took a deep breath and whispered, Don't worry. It's safe. We left Doc with two fusion sticks that would be sufficient to permanently seal off the tunnel. 
Ahead, there was a faint glow. The tunnel must be coming to an end soon. Still, the voices echoed off, in the, off the tunnel walls. As we reached the mouth of the tunnel, there was the sound of a small arms fire. A second later, the fusion stick explosion shook the ground, and then a cloud of smoke and dust billowed out of the tunnel. No more voices. When the dust settled, I looked up at the sky. It was a pale blue with a few scattered white clouds. Couldn't help but think about the crowds down in the city below, and how they had no way of knowing what was going on up here. I could see the air intake tower from here. It was about ten meters high and five meters on a side. Heavy steel mesh covered large the large rectangular opening in the sides of the tower. Tanya began to walk slowly toward the intake structure. I hesitated and then followed her. When we reached the concrete structure, I removed my helmet and took a deep breath. A smile drew slowly across my face. Tanya just stared at me and said, Do you know what you're breathing? Yes. Fresh air. Sweet. Fresh air. She was probably thinking that I'd lost it, but I knew differently. We placed several charges along the pile of wood, sheet metal, and trash obstructing the air inlet screens. I gathered up my pack and helmet, then we sprinted across the rubble strewn street. A gust of wind <coughs> excuse me. A gust of wind sent a wave of garbage tumbling by us. We ducked into a collapsed building and took cover behind a rusted metal carcass. Scanning the building, I saw that these rusting hulks some, that there were many rusting hulks. Some were buried under sand and debris. I fingered the button on the detonator and squinted at the blazing sun pouring in through the building's roll-up door. A sign dangling above the door proclaimed, Exit to Fifth Avenue. I turned, looked at Tanya, and smiled. I had a feeling it wasn't going to be so bad up here after all. I pressed the button, and the noise from the blast drowned out my laugh. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I got a little sci-fi post-apocalyptic fun time. times. My favorite kind. I, I really like this story. I like how it's open to interpretation at the end, too. To, like, where Merchant goes with his life. Like, what he decides to do. Like, he I mean, he blew it up. He knows it's safe to to live up there now and you know he's got a a nice little fembot there with him so i i did get that up. vibe <laughs> of, oh that's winifred yeah winifred easy girl um i did get that vibe of like oh hi winnie moria it made me think of <laughs> oh no what it... oh my god why can't i think of the name of it oh my god it's like one of stephen king's like most oh well known about the sickness Oh. Kills everybody. And everyone's like, oh my god, it's COVID. But it's not at all. What the fuck is the name? Oh my god. I just, just I'm so go ahead, spend some time and go upset it. right now that I did complete and total brain block. But um, in that in that book, um, while they're escaping New York City, they're just like trying to get out through the tunnel. And it's just blocked with cars and dead bodies just stacked high and they just have to wade over all of well, these dead bodies to get out of the tunnel movie, and exit um, New York City. Tunnel. Oh my god. Or just tunnel. I can't I think it it's a Sylvester it's a Sylvester Stallone movie, I believe. Uh, and nope. it it has nope. to do with going under the specific tunnel in New York City and all of a sudden there's an explosion at the entrance of it. Oh, the stand. Oh, the stand. 
the stand. Jesus fucking Christ. Sorry. Oh, yes. See, yeah, it was I upsetting I that I couldn't stand think of the name. It was driving me insane. Sorry. Really, I'm so sorry. But, but anyways. Yeah. I think he also has a book called The Sickness, so that can be confusing. <laughs> anyway, so sorry. No, we're good. <clears throat> All right. Are you ready for mine? For, for my story? I am so freaking ready. Let's do it. Let's get at it. All right. It's called The Daytime Stopped Moving by Bradner Buckner. Dave Miller would never have done it had he been in his right mind. The Millers were not a melancholy stock, you see. Hardly the sort of people you'd expect to read about in the morning paper who had taken their lives the night before. But Dave Miller was drunk, roaringly so, and the barrel of the big revolver, as he stood against the sink, made a ring of coldness against his right temple. Dawn was beginning to stain the frosty kitchen windows. In the faint light, the letter lay a gray square against the drainboard tiles. With the melodramatic gesture of a very drunk Miller, had scrawled across the envelope. This is why I did it. He had found Helen's letter in the envelope when he staggered into their bedroom fifteen minutes ago, at a quarter to five. As had frequently happened during the past year, he had come from home from the store a little late, about twelve hours late, in fact, and this time Helen had done what she said she had long threatened to do. She had left him. The letter was brief, containing a world of heartbreak and broken hopes. I don't mind having to scrimp, Dave. No woman minds that if she feels she's really helping her husband over a rough spot. When business went bad a year ago, I told you I was ready to help in any way that I could. But you haven't let me. You quit fighting when things got difficult, and put in all your money and energy on liquor, horses, and cards. I could stand being married to a drunkard, Dave, but not to a coward. So she was trying to show him. But Miller told himself he'd show her instead. A coward, eh? Maybe this would teach her a lesson. Hell of a lot of help she'd been. Nagging at him every time he took a drink. Holler bloody murder when he put 25 bucks on a horse with a chance to make 500. What man wouldn't do those things? His drugstore was on the skids. Could he be blamed for drinking a little too much? If alcohol dissolved the morbid vapors of his mind? Miller stiffened angrily and tightened his finger on the trigger. But he had one moment of frank insight just before the hammer dropped and brought the world tumbling down about his ears. It brought with it a realization that the whole thing was his fault. Helen was right. He was a coward. There was a poignant ache in his heart. She'd been as loyal as they came, and he knew that. He could have spent his nights thinking up new business tricks instead of swilling whiskey. He could have gone out of his way to be pleasant to customers and not snap at them when he had a terrific hangover. And even Miller knew nobody ever made any money on horses. At least, not when they needed it. But horses and whiskey and business had come tragically, had become tragically confused in his mind. So here he was, full of liquor and madness, with a gun to his head. And then anger swept his mind clean of reason, and he threw his chin up and he gripped the gun tight. Run out of me! Run out on me, she will! He muttered thickly. Well, this'll show her! 
and in the next moment, the hammer fell, and Dave had shown her. Miller had opened his eyes with a start. As plain as black on white, he heard a bell ring, the most familiar sound in the world, too. It was the unmistakable tinkle of his cash register. Now, how in the hell? The thought began in his mind, and then he saw where he was. The cash register was right in front of him. It was open, and on the marble slab lay a customer's five spot. At Miller's glance, strayed up and looked around him. He was behind the drug counter, all right, and there was a man and a girl sipping Cokes at the fountain to his right, the magazine racks opened by the door, the customer tobacco counter across from the fountain, and right before him was a customer. Good Lord, he thought. Was all this a dream? Sweat oozed out of his clammy forehead. That stuff of Herman's that he had drunk during the game, it had a rank taste but he wouldn't have thought anything short of marijuana could produce such hallucinations as he just had. Wild conjectures came boiling up from the bottom of Miller's being. How did he get behind the counter? Who was the woman he was waiting on? What? The woman's curious stare was what jarred him completely into the present. Get rid of her. This was the only thought he had. Then sit down behind the scenes and just try and figure it all out. His hand poised over the cash drawer and then he remembered he didn't know how much he was to take out of the five. Avoiding the woman's glance, he muttered, Let's see, now, um, that was, uh, how much did I say? The woman made no answer. Miller cleared his throat, said, Uncertainty, uncertainly, uh, um, I beg your pardon, ma'am, did I say seventy-five cents? It was just a feeler, but the woman didn't even answer to that. And it was right then that Dave Miller noticed a deep silence that brooded in the store. Slowly, his head came up, and he looked straight into the woman's eyes. She returned him a cool, half-smiling glance. But her eyes neither blinked nor moved. Her features were frozen. Lips parted. Teeth showing a little. The tip of her tongue was between her white teeth, as though she had started to say this, and stopped with the syllable unspoken. Muscles began to rise behind Miller's ears. He could feel his hair stiffen like fillings drawn to a magnet. His glance struggled to the soda fountain. What he saw there shook him to the core of his being. The girl who was drinking a Coke had the glass to her lips, but apparently she wasn't sipping a liquid. Her boyfriend's glass was on the counter. He had drawn on a cigarette and exhaled the gray smoke. That smoke hung in the air like a large, elongated balloon, with the small end disappearing between his lips. While Miller stared, the smoke did not stir in the slightest. There was something unholy, something supernatural about the scene. With apprehension rippling down his spine, Dave Miller reached across the cast register and touched the woman on the cheek. The flesh was warm, but as hard as flint. Tentatively, the young druggist pushed harder, finally shoved with all his might. For all the result, the woman might have had a two-ton bronze might have been a two-tons bronze statue. She neither budged nor changed expression. Panic seized Miller. His voice hit a high hysterical tenor as he called to his soda jerker. Pete! Pete! he shouted. What in God's name is wrong here? The blonde youngster, with a towel wadded in a glass, did not stir. Miller rushed from the back of the store, seized the boy by the shoulders, and tried to shake him, but Pete was rooted to the spot. Miller knew now what was wrong was something greater than a hallucination or hangover. It was some kind of trap. 
His first thought was to rush home and see if Helen was there. There was this great sense of relief when he thought of her. Helen, with her grave blue eyes and understanding manner. She would listen to him, and she would know what's the matter. He left the haunted drugstore in a run, darted around the corner and up the street to his car. But though he had not locked the car, the door resisted his twisting grasp. Shaking, pounding, and swearing, Miller wrestled with each of the doors. Abruptly, he stiffened, as a horrible thought leaped into his being. His gaze left the car and wandered up the street, past the intersection, past the one beyond that, on, up the thoroughfare until the gray haze of the city dimmed everything, and as far as Dave Miller could see, there was no trace of motion. Cars were poised in the street, some passing other machines, some turning corners. A streetcar stood at a safety zone. A man who had leaped from the bottom step hung in a space a foot above the pavement. pavement. Pedestrians paused with one foot up. A bird hovered above a telephone pole, its wings glued to a blue vault of the sky. With a choked sound, Miller began to run. He did not slacken his pace for fifteen minutes, until around him were familiar, reassuring trees and shrubbed, bordered houses of his own street. But yet, how strange to him. The season was autumn, and the air filled with brown and golden leaves that tossed on a frozen wind. Miller ran by two boys laying on a lawn, petrified into modern counterpart of the sculptor's The Wrestlers. The Swedish tang of burning leaves brought a thrill of terror to, to him, for, looking down an alley from whence the smoke drifted, he saw a man tending a fire whose leaping flames were red tongues that did not move. Sobbing with relief, the young druggist darted up his own walk. He tried the front of the door and found it locked and jammed, his thumb against the doorbell, but of course the little metal button was immovable as a mountain. So in the end, after convincing himself that the key could not be inserted into the lock, he sprang towards the back. The screen door was not latched, but it might, it might as well have been a steel door of a bank vault. He began pounding on it, shouting, Helen! Helen, are you in there? My God, dear, something's wrong! You've got to... And the silence that flowed in again when his voice cho choked off was the dead stillness of the tomb. He could hear his voice rustling through empty rooms, and at last it came back to him like a taunt. Helen! Helen! For Dave Miller, the world was now a planet of death on which he lived, alone, moved, and spoke. Staggered, utterly beaten, he made no attempt to break into his home. But he did stumble around to the kitchen window and tried to peer in, anxious to see if there was a body on the floor. The room was in semi-darkness, however, and his straining eyes made out of nothing. He returned to the front of the house, shambling like a solemnambulist. <laughs> Somnambulist. Seated on the porch steps, head in hands, he slipped into, the ha into a hell of regrets. He knew now that, that his suicide had been no hallucination. He was dead all right, and this must be hell or, or purgatory. Bitterly, he cursed his drinking that led him to such a mad thing as suicide. Suicide! He, Dave Miller, a coward who had taken his own life. Miller's whole being crawled with revulsion. If he had just had the last year to live over again, he thought fervently. And yet, through it all, some inner strain kept trying to tell him he was not dead, and that this was his own world, all right, and essentially unchanged. What had happened to it was beyond the pale of mere guesswork, 
But this one thing began to be clear. This was a world in which change or emotion of any kind was a foreigner. Fire would not burn, and smoke did not rise. Doors would not open. Liquids were solid. Miller's stubbing toe would not move a pebble. And a blade of grass easily supported his weight without bending. In other words, Miller began to understand change had been stopped as surely as if a master had put a finger on the world's balance wheel. Miller's ramblings were terminated by the consciousness that he had an acute headache. His mouth tasted, as Herman used to say after a big night, as if an army had camped in it. Coffee and a bromo were what were needed. But it was the great awakening to him when he found a restaurant and learned that he could neither drink the coffee nor get the liquid of the bromo bottle. Fragrant coffee steam hung over the glass percolator, but even the steam was as tough as a brick, wall and avoidant, avoiding probing to his touch. Miller started gloomingly to thread his way through the waiters in the back of the counter again. Moments later, he stood in the street, and there were tears swimming in his eyes. Helen, his voice was pleading whisper, Helen, honey, where are you? There was no answer, but the pitiful palpitation of utter silence. And then there was a movement at Dave Miller's right. Something shot from between the parked cars and crashed against him. Something brown and hairy and soft. It knocked him down. Before he could get his breath, a red, wet tongue was licking his face and hands. He was looking up into the face of a police dog. Frantic with joy at seeing another in the city of death, the dog would scarcely let Miller rise. It stood up to plant big paws on his shoulders and try and lick his face. Miller laughed out loud, a laugh with a throaty catch in it. "'Where'd you come from, boy?' he asked. "'Won't they talk to you, either?' "'What's your name, boy?' There was a heavy brass-studded collar about the animal's neck, and Dave read on his little name-piece, Major. "'Well, Major, at least we've got company now.' Miller had a sigh of relief. For a long time, he was too busy with the dog to bother about sobbing noises. Apparently the dog failed to hear them as well, for he gave no sign. Miller scratched him behind the ear. "'What shall we do now, Major?' Walk? Maybe your nose can smell out another friend for us. They had gone hardly two blocks when it came to him that there was a more useful way of spending their time. Well, the library. Half convinced that the whole trouble stemmed from his suicide shot in the head, which was conspicuously absent now, he decided that the perusal of surgery books in the public library might yield something he could use. That way they bent their steps, and were soon mounting the broad cement stairs of the building. As they went beneath the brass turnstile, the librarian caught Miller's attention. With a smiling glance, he smiled back. "'I'm trying to find something on brain surgery,' he explained. "'I, uh...' And with shock, then, he realized that he had just been talking to himself. In the next instant, Dave Miller whirled. A voice from the bookcases chuckled. "'If you find anything, I wish you'd let me know. I'm stumped myself.' From a corner of the room came an elderly, half-bald man with tangled gray brows— and a rueful smile. A pencil was balanced over his ear, and a notebook was clutched in his hand. "'You too,' he said. I, "'I had hoped I was the only one.' Miller went forward hurriedly, hurriedly to grip his hand. "'I'm afraid I'm not so unselfish,' he admitted. "'I'd been hoping for two hours that I'd run into some other poor soul.' "'Well, quite understandable,' 
the stranger murmured sympathetically. But in my case, it's different, you see. I am responsible for this whole tragic business. You? Dave gulped the word. I, I, th I thought, um... The man wagged his head, staring at his notepad, which was littered with jumbled calculations. Miller had a chance to study him. He was tall, heavily built, with wide, sturdy shoulders, despite his sixty years. Oddly, he wore a gray-green smock. His eyes narrowed with intent. He looked gimlet-sharp beneath those toothbrush brows of his, and he stared right at the pad. <clears throat> well, you know, there's the trouble right here, he muttered. I provided only three stages of amplification, whereas four would have been barely enough. No wonder the phase didn't carry through. Oh, I guess I guess I don't follow you, Miller faltered. You mean something you did? Well, I should think it was something I did. The baldish stranger scratched his head with the tip of his pencil. I'm John Erickson, you know. The Wanamaker Institute? Miller said, uh, oh, oh, in his understanding voice. Erickson was the head of Wanamaker Institute, first laboratory of them all when it came to exploding atoms and blazing trails into the wilderness of science. Erickson's piercing eyes were suddenly boring into the younger man. You, you've been sick, haven't you? He demanded. Well, no, not sick, really, the druggist colored. I'll have to be admit to being, you know, drunk a few hours ago, though. Drunk? Erickson stuck his tongue in cheek, shook his head, scowled. No, that won't hardly do it. There must be something else. The impulsor isn't that powerful. I can understand about the dog, poor fellow. He must have been run over, and I caught him just at the instant of passing from life to death. Oh! Dave Miller lifted his head, knowing now what Erickson was driving at. Well, I may as well be frank. I, uh, I committed suicide, and that's how drunk I was. There hasn't been a suicide in the Miller family in century. It uh, took a skinful of liquor to set the precedent. Erickson nodded wisely. Perhaps we'll find the precedent hasn't really been set. But no matter, he lifted his hand and stopped Miller's eager, wandering exclamation. The point is, young man, we three are in a tough spot, and it's up to us to get out of it. And not only we, but heaven knows how many other in the world over. Would you, uh, maybe, could you explain to my lay mind what happened? Miller suggested. Well, of course, forgive me. You see, Mr. Uh, Miller, Dave Miller, Dave... Dave it is. I had a feeling we're going to be pretty well acquainted before this is over. You see, Dave, I'm a nut in a so-called... I'm a nut on so-called time theories. I've uh, seen time compared to everything from an entity to a long pink worm. But I disagree with them all, because they postulate the idea that time is constantly being manufactured. Such reasoning is fantastic. Time exists, not as an ever-growing chain of links, because such a chain would have to have a tail end. If it has a front end, who can imagine the period when time did not exist? So I think of it as a circular train track, unending. We, who live and die, merely travel on it. The future exists simultaneously with the past for one instant when they meet. Miller's brain was humming. The young druggist scratched his head. You've got me licked, he admitted. I'm a stranger here myself. Well, naturally, you can't be expected to understand things that I've been all my life puzzling about. Simplest way I can explain it is that we're now on a train following this immense circular railway. When the train reaches the point where it started, it's about to plunge into the past. But this is impossible, because the one point where it started simply the is simply the caboose of the train, and that point is always ahead and behind. The time train. Now, my idea 
was that with proper stimulus, a man could be thrust across the diameter of the circular railway to a point in his past. Because of the nature of time, he could either go, neither go ahead of the train to meet the future, nor could he stand and let the caboose catch up with him. But he could detour across the circle and land further back on the train. And that, my dear Dave, is what you and I and Major have done. Almost. Almost, Miller said hoarsely. Erickson pursed his lips. We are somewhere partway across the space between present and past. We are living in an instant that can move neither forward nor back. You and I, Dave, and Major, and Lord knows how many others in the world over, have been thrust in my time impulsor into a timeless beach of eternity. We have been caught in time's backwash. Castaways, you might say. An objection clamored for attention in Miller's mind. But if this is so, where are the rest of them? Where, where is my wife? Well, they're right here, Erickson explained. No doubt you could see your wife if you could find her. But we see them as statues, because for us no longer... Time, time no longer exists. But there was something I did not count on. I did not know that it would be possible to live in one small instant of time, as we are doing. And I did not know that only those who are hovering between life and death can deviate from the normal processes of time. You mean, we're dead? Miller's voice was a bitter monotone. Obviously not. We're talking and moving, aren't we? But we are on the fence. When I gave my impulse of the jolt of high power, it went wrong, and I think something must have happened to me. At the same instant, you had shot yourself. Perhaps, Dave, you are dying. The only way for us to find out is to get to the machine working and topple ourselves one way or the other. If we fall back, we all live. If we fall into the present, we may die. Either way, it's better than this, Miller said fervently. I came here to the library to find one of the things out I must know. My own books are locked in my study, and these, they might be cemented in their places, for all for all to use. Miller nodded, murmuring, well, maybe you'll get an idea when you look at the machine again. Well, let's hope so, Erickson said gr grimly. God knows I've failed so far. It was a solid hour's walk out to West Wilshire, where the laboratory was. The immense bronze and glass doors of Wanamaker Institute were closed, and so barred the two men. But Erickson led the way down the side. We can get in the service door. Then we can climb through the transoms and ventilators and we can get into my lab. Major frisked alongside them. He was enjoying the action and, well, the companionship. It was less of an adventure to Miller, who knew death might be ahead for the three of them. Two workmen were moving a heavy cabinet inside the service door. To get in, they climbed up the back of the rear workman, across the cabinet, and scaled down the front of the leading man. They went up the stairs to the 15th floor. Here they crawled through a transom into the wing-marked experimental enter only by appointment. Major was helped through it. Then they were crawling along the dark metal tunnel of air-conditioning ventilators. It was small and took some wriggling. In the next room, they were confronted by a stern receptionist, on whose desk was a little brass sign reading, Have you an appointment? Miller had his share of experience with receptionists' ways in his days as a pharmaceutical salesman. He took the greatest pleasure in now lighting his cigarette from a match struck on the girl's nose, and he blew the smoke in her face and hastened to crawl through the final transom. John Erickson's laboratory was well lighted by a glass brick wall and a huge skylight. The sun's rays glinted on a time impulsor. The scientist explained the impulsor in concise terms. When he finished, Dave knew just as little as before. 
and the outfits still resembled three transformers in a line, of the type seen on power poles, connected to a great bronze globe hanging from the ceiling. There's this monster that put us in this plight, Erickson grunted. Too strong to be legal, too weak to do the job right. Take a good look. With his hands jammed in his pockets, he frowned at the complex machinery. Miller stared a few moments and transferred his interest to other things in the room. He was immediately struck by the resemblance of a transformer in the far corner, the ones linked up with the impulsor. What's that? he asked quickly. Looks like the same ones you have over here. But didn't you say it was all you needed was another stage of power? Well, that's right. Well, maybe I'm crazy. Miller stared from impulsor to transformer and then back again. Why don't you use it then? Using what for the connection? Erickson's eyes gently mocked him. Well, wire, of course. The scientist jerked a thumb at a small bale of heavy copper wire. Well, bring it over here and we'll try it. Miller was halfway to it when he brought up short, and with a sheepish grin spread over his features. I get it. <laughs> the bale of wire might as well be the Empire State Building as far as we're concerned. Forgive my stupidity. Erickson became suddenly serious. I'd like to be optimistic, Dave, he muttered. But in all fairness, to you I must tell you I see no way out of this. The machine is, of course, still working, and with that extra stage of power, the uncertainty would be over. But where, in this world of immovable things, will we find a piece of wire twenty-five feet long? There was a warm, moist sensation against Miller's hand, and when he looked down, Major stared up at him commiseratingly. Miller scratched him behind the ear, and the dog's eyes closed, reassured and happy. The young druggist sighed, wishing there was some giant hand to scratch him behind the ear and smooth his troubles over. If we don't get out, he says, sober, soberly, we'll starve, I suppose. No, I don't think it'll be that quick. I haven't felt any hunger. Well, I don't expect to. After all, our bodies are still living in one instant of time, and a man can't work up a healthy appetite in one second. Of course, this elastic second business precludes the possibility of disease. Our bodies must go unchanged. The only hope I see is when we are on the verge of madness, suicide. That means jumping off a bridge, I suppose. Poison, guns, knives, all the usual wear with all are denied to us. Black despair closed down on Dave Miller. He thrust it back, forcing a crooked grin. Well, let's make a bargain, he offered. When we finish fooling around with this apparatus, we'll split up. We'll only be at each other's throat if we stick together. I'll be blaming you for my plight, and I don't want to. This is my fault as much as it is yours. How about it? John Erickson gripped his hand. You're all right, Dave. Let me give you some advice. If you ever do get back to the present, keep away from liquor. Liquor and the Irish never did mix. You'll have that store on its feet again in no time. Thanks, Miller said fervently. And I think I can promise that nothing less than a whiskey antidote for a snake bite will ever make me bend an elbow again. For the next couple of hours, despondently reigned in the laboratory. But it was soon to be deposed again by hope. Despite all of Erickson's scientific training, it was Dave Miller himself who grasped the down-to-earth idea that started them hoping again. He was walking about the lab, jingling his keys in his pocket, when suddenly he stopped short. He jerked the ring off the keys to his hand. Erickson! He gasped. We've been blind! Look at this! The scientist looked, but he remained puzzled. Well? He asked skeptically. There's our wire! Dave Miller exclaimed. You've got keys? I've got keys. We've got coins, knives, wristwatches. Why can't we lay them all end to end? 
Erickson's features looked as if he had been electrically shocked. Well, you've hit it, he cried. I think we've got enough. With one accord, they began emptying their pockets, tearing off wristwatches, searching for pencils. The fines, may be a l the fines made a little heap in the middle of the floor. Erickson let his long fingers crawl through the thinning hair. God gave us enough. We'll only need one wire. This thing is plugged in already and only needs one positive pole to be connected to the globe. Come on! Scooping up the assortment of medical, ar medical metal articles, they rushed across the room. With his pocket knife, Dave Miller began breaking up the metal wrist straps, opening the links so that they could be laid out end-to-end -end for the greatest possible length. They patiently broke the watches into pieces, and of the junk they garnered made a ragged foot and a half of wire. Their coins stretched the line still further. They had ten feet covered before the stuff was half used up. Their metal pencils, taken apart, gave them a good two feet. The chains helped generously, with eighteen feet covered. Their progress began to slow down. Perspiration poured down Miller's face. Desperately, he tore off his lodge ring and cut it into two pound into two to pound it flat from garters and suspenders they wore a few inches they won a few inches more and then they stopped feet from their goal miller groaned he tossed his pocket knife in his hand we can get a foot out of this he estimated but that leaves us way short abruptly eric and snap erickson snapped his fingers shoes he gasped they're full of nails we'll get to work with that knife dave we'll cut out every one of them in ten minutes, the shoes were reduced to ragged piles of tattered leather. Erickson's deft fingers painstakingly placed the nails one by one in a line. The distance left to cover was less than six inches. He laid up the last few nails. Then both men were sinking back on their heels as they saw the gap of three inches to cover. Beaten, Erickson ground out. Beaten by three inches. Three inches from the present. And yet it might as well be a million miles. Miller's body felt as though it were in a vice. His muscles ached with strain, so taut were his nerves that he had leaped as though stung when Major nuzzled his cool nose into his hand again. Automatically, he began to stroke the dog's neck. "'Well, that's licked us,' he muttered. "'There isn't another piece of immovable metal in the world.' Major kept whimpering and pushing against him. Annoyed, the druggist shoved him away. "'Go away,' he muttered. "'I don't feel like—' And then suddenly his eyes widened. As, he as the touch encountered warm metal, he whirled. Here it is, he yelled. The last link, the nameplate on Major's collar. In a flash, he had torn the little rectangular brass plate from the dog collar. Erickson took it from his grasp. Sweat stood shiny on his skin. He held the bit of metal over the gap between the wire and pole. This is it, he smiled brightly. We're on our way, Dave. Where, I don't know. To death, or back to life, but we are going. The metal clinked into place. Live writhing power leaped from the wire, snarling across partial breaks. The transformers began to hum. The humming grew louder, singing softly. The bronze globe over their heads glowed green. Dave Miller felt a curious lightness. There was a snap in his brain, and Erickson, Major, and the laboratory faded from his senses. Then came an interval when the only sound left was sobbing, and he had been hearing it as if in a dream. That and blackness that enfolded him like soft velvet. Then Miller was opening his eyes to see familiar walls of his own kitchen around him. Someone cried out, Dave! Oh, Dave, dear! It was Helen's voice. 
and it was Helen who cradled his head in her lap and bent her face close to his. Oh, thank God you're still alive. Helen? Miller murmured. What are you, what are you doing here? I couldn't go through with it. I just, I couldn't leave you. I came back and I, I heard the shot and I ran in. The doctor should be here. I called him five minutes ago. Five minutes? How long has it been since I've shot myself? Oh, just six or seven minutes. I called the doctor right away. Miller took a deep breath. And then it must have been a dream. All that to happen in five minutes? It just wasn't impossible. How could I have botched the job? He muttered. I wasn't even drunk enough to miss myself completely. Helen looked at the huge revolver lying in the sink. Oh, that forty-five of grandfather's. It hasn't loaded up since the Civil War. I guess the powder got damp or something. It just sort of sputtered instead of exploding properly. Dave, promise me something. You won't ever do anything like this again. Just promise. I don't want to nag you. Dave Miller closed his eyes. There won't be any need to nag, Helen. Some people take a lot of teaching, but I've had my lesson. I've got ideas about the store, which I'd been too lazy to try out. You know, I, I feel more like fighting right now than I have for years. We'll lick him, won't we, honey? Helly, Helen buried her face in the hollow of his shoulder and cried softly. Her words were too muffled to be intelligible, but Dave Miller understood what she meant. He had thought the whole thing was a dream. John Erickson, the time impulser, and Major. But that night, he read an item in the evening courier that was to keep him thinking for many days. Police investigate death of scientist here in laboratory. John M. Erickson, director of the Wanamaker Institute, died at his work last night. Erickson was a beloved and valuable figure in the world of science, famous for his recently publicized time-lapse theory. Two strange circumstances surrounded his death. One was the presence of a German shepherd dog in the laboratory, its head crushed as if with a sledgehammer. The other was a chain of small metal objects stretching from one corner of the room to the other, as if intended to take the place of a wire in a circuit. Police, however, discount this idea, as there was a roll of wire only a few feet from the body. Woo! Whoop, woo! That was really good. That was a super depressing at first. It definitely had kind of highs rough, and but and ultimately a, a really me. sweet story. Like, it still gets me the the German shepherd and then his <laughs> head crushed in. I'm like, okay. Okay. Yeah. But that's, I love That's a strong detail. He decided to put it. What was the author's name again? Bradner Buckner. So I found oh, so I found good. this story So um, good. That is That's an author's a, name right there. A hell of an author in name. Um, Lainey and I were looking for stories to... We wanted to do a short story episode. And mine um, had come into public domain recently. So this story is actually... It has some age to it. I don't know if you could tell with the marijuana comment. And one of there was <laughs> one line there at the end of the... Uh, I don't want to nag you. You know, line. Yeah, I don't want to nag you anymore. I know my nagging yeah. is what caused your suicide because I'm mm -hmm. such an annoying woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, Lainey's story was actually written by somebody that she knows. And so that's pretty sick, too. It's, and, that, and that's such a good story. I really, in hearing yes, it again. That is. So, yeah, I was given it, direct permission. It feels as if, if it does. It mm, feels mm, as if it's a Borderlands yes. story. It's it's like a, a DLC. 
It's a DLC. Yes, I love that okay. that comparison. It's perfect. I would I would easily go on that quest almost definitely, times. most definitely. But yeah, right on. <laughs> nice. This is great. I'm really really happy that we did this. We should do this again in the future, for sure. And yeah, um, I know our release dates have kind of been. <laughs> All over the place, but you will have to forgive us because school and life and your recording equipment just crapping out on you happens. Yeah, it just it happens. We, um, so the reason we we're gonna get better. Do, we, we talk about <laughs> how we've heard these stories before. It's because we recorded this episode last week, and the audio file I was working on became corrupted somehow, and I just. I stood up, I walked over to my counter and I like leaned against it and like was heavy breathing. And I was like, I need, I need fucking, I need new recording software. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I messaged Lane immediately and she's like, bro, it's okay. And I'm like, it's not fucking okay. <laughs> it's, it's not okay. It's not okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It, yeah, it can but... be, it can be really frustrating when this, this stuff happens, but that's kind of. Well, Our whole deal too. is we're doing this for fun and for smiles and giggles and having a good time. We are trying to be better so that you guys can have some, <laughs> you know, sense of stability. But we're also still in our I'm infancy. not responsible for the trauma so, that you experienced from my abandonment. We're doing our best, you know. <laughs> right. Really we don't accept that here. We I don't accept that insurance you. here. <laughs> Cash. <laughs> I should have billed my last two therapists. I should have got, they should have fucking paid me for the service that they gave. Oh God, it was awful. Like, dude, my last therapist would just text me like 15 minutes after, because it was, you know, virtual, 15 minutes after our appointment was supposed to start and be like, oh, hi, by the way, I feel like I remember that. be able to make it. And at first I was like, oh this girl is the one for me i was like this is great she's just as flaky as i am i never want to go i you know like i i want want to in the overall sense but then when it's like you know half an hour exactly so i was like this is great this is a win-win i can bail on her anytime she's got no foot to stand on perfect and then after a couple of months of this i was like you know what maybe this isn't maybe this isn't healthy <laughs> maybe this isn't like a good therapist i love that justification in the just beginning. allowing wow. me to also wow, be the biggest She's flake just like me she doesn't want to be with around me either <laughs> my therapist (laughs) is behaving just like i do that's a good sign right there me seeking some counseling and she's worse as you know than i am that's great that's great have used the claw no red flags for sport oh i i it is difficult man i know you said yeah, it is. It is difficult. You have to get, get blah, 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 blah. you got to get your thumbs doing different things at different times, which normally I would be used to I from bought, the amount of PlayStation Five I, I play. But like, my like, god! I saw it. I was on this. I was like scrolling through Instagram one day, and I bought it for the same reason the video existed, which was some person who was like, 
you know, like they were laughing and they're like, so I bought this little claw machine. Oh my God. Off Instagram. And they're freaking out. And then they dump their antidepressants in it. And then you kind of, they worked the meds out and they're like, and now I have to work for my happiness. And I instinctfully was like, I'm going to buy this. Oh for my ladies God. PRM. I work too hard as <laughs> The moment is. I gave it to you, I said it to you. The moment I gave it to you. So I'm like full panic mode. My hands are already shaking. I can't breathe. And you want me to try yeah, and get my shit out of a claw machine? She's enjoying herself. <laughs> I'm just going to end up breaking it and just like. I go over here. <laughs> and you don't even have like, the, like the, the decency to throw it out. It's just smashed in a corner. shrine to its parts. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it for you. So you see what you've done to me. <laughs> Is this what you wanted? Is this what you wanted? Anyways, it's fantastic. I'm going to call you like mid-panic attack. Like the the, the shaking of of pills inside of a little plastic toy. (laughs) (laughs) Like a maraca. It's the Boone County making call. Shake, 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 shake. Shake, 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 shake. So proud of his joke. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a deep cut. Oh, man. I love, I love rednecks. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, they are... Hog, hog hollering you know, rednecks. What we're surrounded yeah, but... by. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like West Virginia rednecks, though. That's that's a whole nother breed. I, I would not... If, you know, if we had a ring... And we put a Maine redneck in with a West Virginian redneck. Maine yeah, you guys know lose why? it almost yeah, every time. Yeah, you want to know why? It's because they're, they're wily they, they out pick there. Up something for a weapon. They're wily. They're immediately looking to grab something. They're barely ever using their fists. They get their shit kicked out of them all the time. <laughs> this out here <laughs> revving their trucks. Oh man, I did. Oh, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. It's a later time, later date <laughs> kind of story. <laughs> We've ended this. Oh, Let's end this on a high note. Of I don't talk about. We're done. <laughs> just, just the flashbacks, just like adolescent flashbacks, pummeling me in the face, yeah, and how the, I'm the, very the, glad. The golden I, twisted tea shower of, of regret over your face. I never had a twisted tea thing. Ugh, I hate nothing yeah, did, more did you ever go than through twisted face? tea. You it tastes like somebody never. urinated. Never. Not once. Not ever did I go through a twisted tea phase. It, it always has tasted like somebody has taken like a pitcher of sun tea and just urinated in it. And then they're like, <laughs> let's bottle that up. I would have to. Sound good? I, Sound good? I would have to say. Yeah, that let's do it. Little, little and then sold it yeah, as alcohol. I did down like four raspberry twisted teas once kayaking. I feel like there are certain circumstances where twisted tea, if available, and one of the few uh, opportunity or few things to drink, uh, kayaking, boating, beach activities, Mm -hmm. pool, your uncle's pool party, you know, like all those places are the acceptable place for a twisted tea. (laughs) Where's not an acceptable place for twisted tea? You know, inside your own home on a couch, you know, as an adult. Okay, get it out of your guide in January. In January. Like when twisted tea is your favorite drink, 
You need to figure your shit out, Cheryl. Get it together. You know what? We probably just lost two of our most valued listeners. (laughs) We did lose two Cheryls right there. (laughs) God damn it. it. (laughs) Oh, I I would like to make a public acknowledgement to my ageism comment a few episodes back. I off the cusp said that something about technology and I felt like a 50 year old. I am so deeply sorry from the soles of my squeedily spooch that I may have offended you, Jason, and I take it back. (laughs) It's done. We never have to speak of it again. I have publicly apologized. Gonna stamp that one out. <laughs> Just be like the Shame. woman following me around with the the bell. Shame. 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 Which I just recently found out is the woman from Ted, Ted Lasso, Lasso, which never gave blew my mind. Oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, mm, yeah mm, I, I know. I know. Uh, it it cradles me. You know, cradles me in its breast and just lets me suckle there for nourishment and keeps me warm and loved that's what ted lasso watching ted lasso makes me feel like like i'm just in the safest bosom and just all of my like needs are would, met it's a great it feeling like on the outside it's cradling <laughs> in the top part of a turkey's neck where that little flappy piece of skin is just like wow of, that is the least appealing thing that i think i've ever heard <laughs> Almost what? making you try to I don't want any of the turkey, the turkey neck skin <laughs> flap. I am disappointed in our friendship. <laughs> I regret everything up to I, this point that I, I had to hear that, that compared to that. I fucked up way beyond, <laughs> way, way before this. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing out the flag. Challenge. <laughs> right so never so visually. You said turkey neck. <laughs> we were talking about Ted Lasso. <laughs> I, I'm done. I'm His done. wife left him for Harry Styles. <laughs> it's Harry Styles. Uh, God damn it! Fuck you. All right, Harry we gotta, I get Styles. <laughs> I don't have time to go into a Harry Styles <laughs> rant right now, Kat. I, I don't I have the energy. Well, <laughs> or I'm the willingness don't have either, but I'll do it. I'm ready for it. <laughs> Seems like a good man, but yeah, if you really could just stop coming at me, it'd be really he great. Has fantastic pants. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, he does sometimes look oh. like a Dr. Seuss tree. Oh, yeah. Or just all of them. That's, what, that's, that's what's happening. That's they're here nor there. pulling out all the books. Redfish, bluefish, whitefish. I go for him. I say go for you. You fish. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I... <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was wow. I've been, uh, I've been that was good to do children's <laughs> readings. All right, we're gonna end this now. Anyway, and- wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, everywhere but Facebook. <laughs> if you look up, yes, everywhere but Facebook. Um, yeah, we got a TikTok thing happening. It's there. It's- it exists. I wouldn't know, I mean, it's, but Kat it's says as, it does, so I believe her. It's as um, a, a, a community college bulletin board. It's get, 
it's getting some passbys. Woo! Yeah, Doing great. We got that one nerdy kid that just loves it and Twitter, wants. Twitter, Twitter, yeah, I'm yeah, mainly no, just good. Uh, good like standing on the wall with all the other people at the eighth grade dance. You know, we're just waiting for somebody to make a move. Not a completely developed. Also Twitter. good. Also a good Reddit's, group of people. Reddit's that popping. was my group do, of people. I do love me some Reddit and Instagram. She's <laughs> always a fun place to be. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's where we're most active. Um, check out all of the amazing artwork and things that Kat has been doing on our Instagram. So many She's cool been things. Freaking killing it. First uh, of all, well, I have been slacking off at school. That's what I love. Well, I know. I'm just so impressed by you. I know. So it's great. Thankfully, uh, you fit into this well, role perfectly, and I, I don't have to really feel as bad. Just slightly bad, but not as bad. Because you're working incredibly hard, and you're doing fantastic work. So, yeah. Your schooling things no, and passing you. all those things. I thank you. I don't know if you've mentioned that in this. I would normally brush you off, but this is the first time in my life that yeah, I've got a solid 4.0 and passed the practice. Yeah. So I'm. Like, I don't know. If, I don't know Ooh. if you mentioned it in our previous. <coughs> normally, yeah, I would be like, no, nah. to the trash. But. but did you want to let people know how things were going in <laughs> school? Okay, all right. That's I mean, it. I they're feel like just, I just did by saying I got a 4.0 and passed the practice. Would you like to take any more time? I'm doing good. I am. I think I've said all I needed to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Although, although I am taking a class this upcoming semester that is just titled <laughs> Violence. So I'm hoping I'll get a lot of really good information for the show. I have so much juice today, guys. So much juice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be going into that class hot. Being ready. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. We love you so much. It's been a great time. And yeah, we'll All right, catch thanks, you the guys. next time around. Cheers. That pig was my companion. I played with him. I taught him tricks. We used to play hide and go seek. I can still see his little face now peeping around the corner of the house to see whether I was coming after him. After a while, he got too heavy for me to carry him around, and then he followed me everywhere. To the barn, the plowed grounds, the woods. Actual quote from U.S. President Abraham Lincoln. <laughs>